Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 162 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Pauline Dakin and her bizarre secret childhood. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around for the end of the episode, as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on spontaneous human combustion. But first, like a lot of children... Pauline Dakin's family moved a few times as she was growing up. She made new friends, but it was always sad to say goodbye when they needed to move again. When she asked her mother why they were moving, all her mother would say is that she'd explain when Pauline was older. Eventually, her mother did explain, and it turned Pauline's world upside down. So who is Pauline Dakin? What did her mother reveal? And what was the real reason her family was moving around the country? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. It was dusk, late February of 1988. The air was cold and clear as I stepped out of my car in the parking lot of the highway gas station. A crescent moon to the southwest was perfectly outlined in the darkening sky. At its tip winked a bright large star, perhaps a planet. The horizon still glowed a deep magenta. My mother's aging blue Toyota Tercel was parked nearby, under a light. We'd agreed to meet here in the small farming community of Sussex, New Brunswick. She would drive from Halifax, Nova Scotia, where she was doing her theology degree, and I would drive from St. John, New Brunswick, where I was working as a reporter at the local newspaper, the Telegraph Journal. As I approached our rendezvous, I saw the light of a motel just off the highway, a few hundred meters from the gas station. I'd driven by the large, lit-up block letters of the Bluebird Motel many times. I walked over to Mom's car and got in, said hello, leaning across for a hug. She held me just a beat longer tighter than normal. As she pulled back, her smile was sad, almost apologetic. She handed me a note and an empty envelope. She put one finger over her lips, hushing me, although I wasn't speaking. She pointed at the note. Puzzled, I unfolded it and read it in her distinctive handwriting. Don't say anything. Take all your jewelry off and put it in the envelope. Don't talk until we get out of the car again. I will explain. I sat, staring at the note. I could hear my pulse as silence descended between us like a wall. My mother suddenly felt like a stranger whose intentions were unclear. Why this bizarre drama? I looked at her for a long moment, then slowly took off my rings. The small diamond cluster my father had given me for my 16th birthday. A square-cut peridot, my birthstone. I pulled the long, heavy chain that held an antique-style watch out of my shirt front and over my head. A gift from Mom the Christmas I was 15. It all went into the envelope. I passed it to her. She licked the flap, sealed the envelope, and set it on the console between our seats. As she put the car into gear and eased into the now-darkening winter road, I braced myself for what was to come. 
we drove the short distance in silence. That's the way Pauline Dakin begins the book in which she tells the story of the mystery that we'll be looking at today. Pauline soon learned that the reason her mother wanted her to be silent and to take off all her jewelry was that she thought the jewelry might contain hidden listening devices, that it might be bugged, so it needed to be checked. So what do we need to say as we begin to start looking at today's mystery? A few things. First, this is a really fascinating story, and there's a lot to say about it. As a result, we'll be doing a two-parter. In today's episode, we'll tell you about Pauline Dakin, her very strange childhood, and the startling explanation she was finally given. Then next episode, we'll tell you about the amazing secret world that was revealed to her. Also, this mystery has been solved, so we'll be telling it in a straightforward way as it unfolded around Pauline. Then towards the end, we'll look at a few last things from the faith and reason perspectives. And we need to say that there's nothing graphic or violent that happens in this story. There's nothing like that. However, some of the psychological themes it involves might disturb younger, really sensitive children. So parents should listen and make decisions for their family. So let's begin. Who is Pauline Dakin? She was born in 1964 in Canada. Her father was named Warren Dakin, and he was a World War II veteran. In fact, like many patriotic young men, he lied about his age, saying that he was older than 17 in order to get into the military and serve his country during World War II. By the time he met Pauline's mother in the 1960s, however, he'd become an investment dealer and a director with a securities company, so he made a lot of money. By contrast, Pauline's mother, Ruth, grew up poor. As an adult, she served as a stewardess on TransCanada Airlines, which later became Air Canada. That's how she met Warren, who was a frequent passenger taking business trips between Vancouver and Toronto. Despite the airline's rules against fraternizing with passengers, and despite the fact she was 15 years younger than Warren, Ruth started dating him, and the two fell in love and got married. They lived in an upper-class neighborhood in Vancouver, British Columbia, on the west coast of Canada, and there they had Pauline in 1964. A couple of years later, around 1966, they had her brother, whose name is Ted. After she grew up, Pauline became a journalist, and in 2016, she became a journalism professor at the University of King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia, on Canada's east coast. She also became a best-selling and award-winning author after she chronicled her experiences in a best-selling book that we'll definitely have a link to. Yeah, I love those Canadian maritime provinces, some of my favorite places. Yeah, those are on the, the East Coast for people who may not know. That's right. So how does her story begin? Well, unfortunately, Warren and Ruth's marriage didn't last, and so they broke up in around 1969 when Pauline was five. The children then lived primarily with their mother, and they didn't see a lot of their dad. Ruth, her mother, had a hard time after the divorce. She went into a depression, and so she started attending a support group. There, a friend recommended that she go to a man named Stan Sears. He was both a psychologist and a minister in the United Church of Canada. What's the United Church of Canada? It's a mainline Protestant church, and it's the largest Protestant church in Canada. Only the Catholic Church is bigger there. The United Church was founded in 1925 when several different types of churches merged. 
These included Presbyterian, Methodist, and Congregational churches. And the United Church represented a kind of first in multi-denominational mergers like this around the world. It was a notable moment in the history of ecumenism, and since then, other united or uniting churches have appeared in other countries. And was Reverend Sears able to help Pauline's mother, Ruth? In time, yes. At first, she was in a really bad psychological state and was fearful after her divorce from Warren for reasons we won't go into. However, here's how Pauline describes her mother's condition based on Reverend Sears's case notes. Mrs. Dakin is in an extremely depressed state, he wrote after their first session. Very withdrawn, guard up, has built a wall around self. If she trusts anyone, I don't know who it is. End quote. Sometimes he said she would cry. Often she would shake uncontrollably as she talked about her marriage, her children, her own childhood, growing up in the poverty of the Depression-era Canadian prairies. During her continued counseling with Stan in the months after my father moved out, Stan's notes chronicle her weight loss, her continuing spiral. Quote, Nervous and depressed state has increased alarmingly despite medication. End quote. He compared her to an injured fawn he'd once come across in the woods that wanted help but refused it because of fear. I didn't dare come out from behind my desk, Stan told me. He said if he got up, even to go to a nearby bookcase, she tensed, flinched. She always needed to locate the exit from any room and would choose the closest seat to it, preferably with her back to a wall. But over the months of counseling they did, Reverend Sears was able to help Pauline's mother, and she gradually came out of her shell and her depression. In 1972, when Pauline was seven, her mother started taking uh, the family to Reverend Sears's church. The children had been originally baptized Anglican, but Ruth's own mother had always taken her to church when she was a child, and so this was kind of a religious homecoming for her. And what did the kids think of Reverend Sears? They really loved him and his wife, Sybil. The Searses had two grown sons who were living away from home, and so they weren't around anymore. But Stan and Sybil kind of took Ruth and her two young children under their wing. You know, it was a Christian thing to do. Ruth was all alone trying to raise two children as a single mother. And the two families became quite close, eventually starting to go on vacation camping trips together. Pauline, in particular, became close with Reverend Sears. Here's how she describes their first meeting. The first time I met Stan, Reverend Sears to me back then, was on the street outside the large old clapboard church where he was the minister. He was in his late 40s, medium height with a wiry build and dark hair, generously streaked with iron gray, parted to one side. Stan had a compelling face, possibly because of the intelligence and humor that illuminated it. He was always quick to smile and liked to laugh. He knelt down in front of me when Mom introduced us. I'm glad to meet you, he said in a way that made me believe it. You're in grade two, he asked. I nodded. Ted, who was then five, had been running around the church lawn. He came over now and sidled up beside me, uncharacteristically shy for a moment beside this new man. Well, hey, you must be Ted. Stan held out his hand. Ted took it and shook vigorously, a smile spreading across his face. Stan took his hand back and wiggled his fingers in a pantomime of getting the blood flow going again. Strong shake you've got. Ted's grin widened proudly. Shortly after this, Pauline witnessed Reverend Sears defend a nest of baby robins against a group of boys, and when she saw him stand up for the baby birds, it increased how much she liked him. He even became a kind of surrogate father for her, now that her biological father was largely out of her life, and she took to calling him Papa. Pauline writes, 
In some ways, it was a childhood fantasy come true. Stan had been like a father to me from the time I was seven. He was the guy who showed up for the father-daughter tea at school, who taught me how to start a campfire, and always had a goofy joke to make Ted and me laugh. After the first time we met, he would often stop me outside the church service to ask how school was, how things were going. Later, Stan stood in for her father and gave Pauline away at her wedding. Pauline also really liked Stan's wife, Sybil. She writes, Sybil and I both loved to swim. While Mom and Stan set up the campsite and Ted buzzed around them in a whirl of excited activity, Sybil and I would head for whatever body of water the park boasted. Lake, river, ocean, pool. I don't recall our conversations for the most part. She didn't try to draw me out. She just let me talk or not, as I wished. But Sybil had a quiet, accepting way that invited conversation. Standing in a lake with little fish swimming about our legs, I would tell her about school, my friends, what I was reading. So there was a really close, warm relationship between the two families. And some of the bad memories from before her father and mother split started to fade. The years when my mother and father were still together are a disjointed slideshow of scenes and scattered moments. A rainy afternoon watching Star Trek and deciding I would marry Captain James T. Kirk when I was old enough. Our St. Bernard dog dragging Ted, still a toddler, on a sled after a big snowfall. The things to do box, a shoebox filled with craft supplies, old buttons, styrofoam balls that mom would pull out of a closet for me on days when I needed something to do. Now that things had begun to heal, Pauline had other interests too. I was in grade four. I loved my teacher. She was strict but glamorously beautiful. Her long, dark hair curled out and up at the ends. Her wide-legged pantsuits, the height of fashion in 1973. She drove a white convertible Volkswagen Beetle, and I hoped I would grow up to be a blonde version of her someday. How could Captain Kirk resist me then? (laughs) I love that peek into the fantasy life of a little girl watching Star Trek. As a boy, my fantasies were about being James Kirk, or more often, being Mr. Spock in my case. Yeah, as long as I wasn't a red shirt, I'd be happy to be anywhere on the Enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> so how was Ruth Dakin supporting her family at this time? Partially, it was through child support payments from her former husband, Warren, who certainly had the money, but there were disputes about the support payments. To bring in extra money, Ruth worked for a while as a church secretary at the United Church where she was taking the kids. So altogether, it seems that the, the young family was making a go of it and it achieved a degree of happiness and stability. Did that last? Unfortunately, no. Pauline and her brother Ted began to notice that their mother was on edge and a series of strange events started to unfold. Precisely when these began is impossible to know as their childhood memories have faded and children don't pick up on everything that's going on with the adults around them anyway. But they could perceive that something strange was happening. Sometimes they'd find their mother crying, and when they asked why, she would say that she'd explain when they were older. And that's not too surprising for a young, divorced, single mother to feel the need to cry from time to time. And it's kind of hard to explain to a child, and so it wasn't unreasonable for her to just say, I'll I'll explain when you're older. But it still seems strange to the kids. And there were other things. Sometimes their mother would suddenly change their dinner plans and say that they wouldn't be eating at home, but going out to a restaurant. And from an adult perspective, that's also not too strange. I mean, I can imagine a single mother getting home from work and not really wanting to cook and just saying, let's go out. But other times, as the children were getting ready for school, suddenly their mother would announce that they 
weren't going to school that day. Instead, they'd be going on an unexpected family outing just to get away from their regular routine. And they'd take a hike out into the woods or they'd go bowling or they'd unexpectedly go have a picnic, even though Pauline had a quiz in school that day. There also would be unexpected weekend trips that would be announced at the last minute. And the weird thing was that whenever something like this happened, their mom insisted that they not tell anybody where they were going, including where they were going for their summer vacations. And if they asked why they couldn't tell their friends about their family plans, Ruth would again say that she'd explain when they were older. Other than being secretive about family plans, did Ruth do anything else that was unusual? One time, Pauline, or Polly as she was called when she was a kid, came home and found her mother emptying out the fridge. She was throwing everything in it out, all the bottles, jars, and containers of food. When Pauline asked why, her mom said that the food had gone bad, but Pauline wondered whether mustard really goes bad, and of course it doesn't. Of course. And a whole fridge wouldn't go bad all at the same time. On another occasion, they had to suddenly leave their home at night when their mom said the furnace wasn't working right. And there were other unusual things going on, too. One Christmas, Pauline received a gift of beaded, fringed buckskin moccasins that were placed under the tree for her. But instead of saying that they were from a relative or from Santa, her mom said that they were from a friend, someone you don't know. Also, several years in a row, they'd find a box of Christmas oranges on their doorstep in mid-December. Eating oranges is uh, for Christmas is a tradition in Britain and I gather in Canada, even though we don't seem to have that tradition here in the U.S., at least based on my experience. In any event, when the kids would ask where the Christmas oranges came from, her mom would also reply, just a friend, someone you don't know. And once this happened. One afternoon in Vancouver, when I was probably eight or nine, Stan arrived at the door. We just arrived home from school and were sitting in the living room. The next thing we knew, we were being told to hurry to the bathroom where mom had run a tub full of water and was sprinkling something into it. Wash your feet, she instructed, and make sure you do a good job between your toes. Why? There's cleaner on the carpet that's bad for your skin, she said. I didn't remember anyone cleaning our carpets, but Ted and I sat on the edge of the tub rubbing away at some unseen contaminant. When I looked at him to see how he was reacting to this, he just shrugged, made a silly face, and scrubbed some more. Ted always rolled with these strange events, saying little. After we'd washed, Mom gave us plastic bags to put over our socked feet when we walked to the back door, where she passed us our shoes and herded us back outside. We all left and went out for an unplanned dinner and movie. So, Mom suddenly makes them wash their feet. First, though, she sprinkles some kind of powder in the water that they will use to wash. Afterwards, she makes them put on socks, and they have to put plastic bags over the socks. And then they go out for an unplanned dinner and a movie, which would keep them out of the house for hours. As we mentioned, Ruth and the kids had been spending a lot of time with Reverend Sears and his wife, Sybil. And in 1974, they took a summer road vacation trip together. School had just finished, grade four for me and grade two for Ted. It was late June, and we packed up the Volkswagen camper van with all our camping gear, games, and books, the bicycles strapped to a rack on the back. We were heading out on vacation to the prairies and ultimately Winnipeg, a trip halfway across the country. 
The Searses were coming in their old camper, and we talked about the stops we would make along the way to visit Mom's old aunties in Saskatchewan and Manitoba before we turned around and headed home in time to go back to school. For our listeners outside of Canada, where is Winnipeg? Winnipeg is in the southern part of the province of Manitoba, not far from the U.S. border. It's north of, but almost directly above the dividing line for the U.S. states of North Dakota and Minnesota. I remember going to Winnipeg as a boy and swimming in a heated indoor pool there in the 1970s on one of my own family's trips. And I really enjoyed that. It was the first time I, I think I ever swam in a heated pool. In any event, Winnipeg is in the middle of Canada or the middle of the continent, if you consider it from west to east. It's about 1,500 miles or 2,300 kilometers east of Vancouver, British Columbia, on the west coast where they had been living. And I'm guessing something eventful happened on this trip. It wasn't just an ordinary summer vacation. Two noteworthy things happen. First, after they got to Winnipeg, Ruth informed Pauline and Ted that the Searses would be staying there. They wouldn't be returning to Vancouver with them. Reverend Sears had gotten a new job at a church that was in Winnipeg. From an adult perspective, you could see this trip as a kind of last road trip with family friends and to give the kids a really nice final memory of being with the Sears, who they loved. Ruth didn't want to spoil the whole trip by telling them at the outset that the Searses would be staying. So she saved that information until they got there. And Pauline confessed that when her mom told her, I was sad about this. I'd come to think of them as family and secretly wished Mr. Sears was my dad. Pauline had trouble sleeping as a result. And when she got out of bed early and went down into the kitchen of the house where they were staying, Pauline's mother seemed to have made a decision of her own. We're not going back to Vancouver, she said. I could feel her willing me to be calm, to take this news bravely. In those first moments, I felt only disbelief. We're going to live here now, she continued, in case I wasn't following this remarkable leap. And this appears to be a decision that Ruth had only just made after they got to Winnipeg. Unlike Reverend Sears, she seemed to have been totally unprepared for the move. She didn't have a job lined up there like he did. She didn't have a place for her and the kids to stay. She hadn't packed their belongings from their house in Vancouver. And in fact, they had someone back in Vancouver feeding Pauline's pet cat for them. So after announcing the move and finding temporary quarters for the kids to stay with some people she'd met, mom had to drive all the way back to Vancouver by herself, pack up and ship their most essential belongings and retrieve the cat. So this looks like an unplanned, sudden decision. And before leaving to do all this, she again insisted that the children not tell anyone where she had gone. Why would she make a sudden decision to move to Winnipeg like that? It could have been a number of factors. Uh, Ruth had grown up in mid-continental Canada in the prairies, so this was her native part of the country. And maybe visiting it felt like a homecoming and she wanted to stay. Also, ever since her divorce, Reverend Sears and his wife Sybil had been big sources of support for her and the kids, and maybe as she was about to say goodbye to them for the last time, she decided she didn't want to lose that support network. Pauline, even as a child, thought that the move was at least partly motivated to get some distance from their father back in Vancouver. Things had been very tense between Ruth and her ex-husband Warren. There had been legal battles, and lately Warren had either been showing up late for his appointments with the children or not showing up at all, which really upset the children. I mean, to have them all ready to meet their dad and 
then he doesn't show up without a word. So you can imagine how that would make them feel. Did their father, Warren, ever find out that they were living in Winnipeg? Yes, and Pauline is unclear on how. One Christmas in Winnipeg, Pauline wrote him a letter and told him that she missed him. In her book, Pauline says that she didn't tell him where they were and that he must have learned some other way. However, even if she didn't include the street address, I don't know why he couldn't have simply looked at the postmark to see that the letter came from Winnipeg. I, I checked, and postmarks have been used in Canada since 1764, and even that far back, they included the name of the town that the letter was mailed in. So knowing the town, it would be easy for him or a detective he hired to check public records and locate them more precisely. And what happened when he found out? He initiated a new round of legal proceedings since Ruth had essentially absconded with the children and was denying him his court-mandated visits. He presented Pauline's letter as evidence that the children still loved and missed him. Eventually, he came out for a court-mandated family visit, which was really tense. During it, he asked why they had suddenly disappeared from Vancouver. Ruth said it was because he was drinking when the children were in his custody. However, when the children were questioned about this, they could not verify that he had been drinking at that time. So it was Ruth's word against Warren's. How was Ruth making a living at this point? For a time, she took a job at the Provincial Hydro Office, which, to the best of my ability to determine, means the Office of Manitoba's Hydroelectric Service. And I verified that Manitoba Hydro did exist at the time. It was founded back in 1961. However, eventually, Reverend Sears was able to help Ruth find work in the audiovisual department of the United Church. And Pauline remembers being taken to work and reading in a corner behind shelves of film reels with the women her mother worked with occasionally looking at her. Did Ruth and the kids continue to have contact with Reverend Sears and his wife? Yes. We continued to see the Searses at their new Winnipeg church that we also attended and to share Thanksgiving, Christmas and Easter dinners together. We went on a few weekend camping trips, and Sybil, Mrs. Sears, took me snowshoeing that first winter, teaching me to avoid tripping by stepping with my legs apart, along a long band of deep snow bordering the Assiniboine River, not far from where they lived. And overall, Ruth seemed happier and more relaxed now that they had moved to Winnipeg. And did strange things continue to happen while they were living in Winnipeg? There were the usual unexpected changes of plans and the secretiveness about not telling anyone what they were doing, which Ruth explained to the children as family privacy. And then one day when Pauline got home from school, Mom met me at the door with instructions to pack an overnight bag. We're going for a sleepover at the Sears's, she said, her falsely bright tone, an attempt to belie the stress around her mouth. The tension in her body then made her movements jerky as she gathered what she needed for the night. It seemed odd. Since when did adults have sleepovers? And on a school night? The rule had always been no sleepovers on school nights. But I packed pajamas, toothbrush, a book, and fella, my black and white stuffed rabbit fur creature that might have been a panda or bear cub. When we got to the Searses, we had dinner together. Mom, my little brother Ted, and me, Stan, and Sybil. The adults seemed distracted and strange. The conversation was liable to break off mid-thought. Not much fun for a sleepover. We finally settled in for an early night. I was in a spare room on the main floor and had read myself to sleep when the noise started. In the basement below me, I could hear what sounded like blows, a scuffle, grunts, the sounds of something crashing into walls, maybe into furniture. 
I felt electric jolts of fear and wanted to yell, but as in a nightmare, I was unable to make a sound. I sat up and turned the bedside light on, but it didn't help. The fury of sound continued. I was frozen in the bed when mom came in to comfort me, but her own jitteriness convinced me my fear was entirely justified. Stan and Sybil stuck their heads through the doorway. It's okay, Stan said, before heading down the hall to check on Ted. It's the dog, Mom said. He's all upset. It made no sense. It didn't jive with what I was hearing, but at some point the noise stopped, and somehow, eventually, I must have fallen back to sleep. Also, one day, Ruth took the kids on one of their unexpected surprise absences from school. She said that they'd be going to the nearby town of Portage-la-Prairie, perhaps to go bowling, but instead they went to the town of Saint-Anne. This was not a jaunt or a lark. Stan was in the hospital there, seriously injured. Sybil didn't drive. We were taking her to visit Stan, who was groggy with painkillers and looked small and shrunken in the bandages wrapped around his chest and his head. It was frightening to see him so reduced, incapacitated, and weak. He'd been horseback riding with a friend and was thrown by the horse, Mom told us. He'd broken seven ribs in eleven places and hit his head. Something had startled the horse, he told us as he lay, grunting and wincing with distress. If he tried to move, struggling to breathe, past the pain in his chest. And this wasn't the only weird incident with Stan. The next summer, the two families set out for a camping trip in Canada's maritime provinces on the East Coast, which was where Stan had grown up. While they were there, a very strange incident with Stan occurred. Stan was acting strangely. He spent those days sitting on a chair by the campfire, in turn looking confused, suspicious, and agitated. Who are you? he asked me as I approached him, wondering what was wrong. Who was I? What did he mean? I'm Polly, I answered simply, using my childhood nickname, unsure if I should elaborate. He didn't reply, just stared at me a long time, questioningly, before turning his gaze back to the fire. So Stan didn't seem to recognize Pauline, even though he'd known her for years. In any event, after the trip to the Maritime Provinces, the families turned around and went back to Winnipeg in the center of the continent. But this day didn't last long. Having visited the part of Canada where he grew up, Stan and Sybil decided to move to Canada's East Coast permanently. Did they just abandon Ruth and the children? No, they invited Ruth to move with them, and they sent her a catalog of houses in St. John, New Brunswick to look at. This was in 1978, when Pauline was 13 and in the eighth grade, and she had just been elected vice president of her class in school, showing how much success she had, despite not being a native of the area. This time, Ruth shared the planned move with the kids in advance and let them know that they'd be moving again, so it wasn't the kind of sudden, unexpected decision that occurred the first time. But she did insist on the children not telling any of their childhood friends that they were thinking of moving. Pauline actually did tell her best friend, but swore her to secrecy as well. Also, since they were living in the middle of the school year, Pauline wondered what the reaction of the teachers would be when she and her brother didn't show up for class the next Monday. But this didn't seem to become an issue later. Uh, and, you know, who knows why? Probably the mom just informed the school that they were moving. In any event, the family successfully made the move to St. John's, New Brunswick, and began rebuilding their lives there. Pauline often saw her mother crying after the move, but her mother only said that she'd be able to explain when Pauline was older. How long did they stay in St. John? For the rest of Pauline's high school years. 
During this time, Pauline and her little brother Ted made some summer trips back to Vancouver to see their father, Warren. This did not please their mother, but she tolerated the trips. She also warned them to be very careful not to reveal personal information to people in Vancouver. Eventually, after the two of them got out of high school, Ted moved back to live with his father in Vancouver, which Ruth really did not like, but could not stop. Meanwhile, Pauline was still on the East Coast, where she started taking work as a journalist. She also got engaged to a young man named Terry. Reverend Sears and his wife moved to another town on the East Coast to take a job at a new church. But this time, now that the kids were out of the house, Ruth didn't follow them. Instead, she decided to go back to school and get a theology degree. And then, one day in February of 1988... When Pauline was 23 years old, she got a call. Mom called me at work. We usually talked in the evening, but I was glad to hear from her. She'd moved to Halifax the previous year to go back to school, and I missed her and our day over debriefs. Can you talk for a minute, she'd asked. Sure, I answered. I have an interview, but I don't have to leave for 20 minutes. What's up, I asked. I could hear Mom inhale deeply. She was bracing herself to begin. My interest increased. You know, so many times in your life I've told you that someday I'd be able to explain things, she began. Yes, it was a refrain I'd grown sick of through my childhood. Why are you crying? I'll explain when you're older. Why are we missing school to go bowling? Today? I'll tell you someday when you're old enough. Why do we have to move without telling anyone where we're going? When you're bigger, I'll explain. Why can't we ever tell anyone we're going on vacation or even if we're going out for dinner? Why is everything such a big secret all the time? Well, Mom continued, it's time. I have to tell you some things that will make a lot of the strange events in our lives make sense to you. I could hardly believe my ears. At some point, I decided, I'll tell you when you're older, was a placating reaction designed to deflect more questions. Now, at the age of 23, it seemed I would finally learn the mystery, the cause of the behavior that had so often confused and frustrated my brother and me. What do you mean? We can't talk about this on the phone, she said, an echo of another warning I'd heard many times before. She gave me instructions to meet her that Friday night at the highway gas station in Sussex. Don't tell anyone you're meeting me, she said. Yeah, I know, I know. And so we've caught up to where we began the episode, with Pauline meeting her mother at a gas station. She got into her mother's car, at which point her mother had her take off all her jewelry and put it in an envelope. Her mother then drove to a nearby motel where her mom had booked a room. They went inside, and her mother knocked on the door to the adjoining room, which opened, and in came Reverend Stan Sears. Over the next few hours, Ruth and Stan told Pauline the reason for all of the strange overly protective behavior she and Ted had been subject to during their childhoods. Before I met your mother, Stan continued, I spent some months counseling an alcoholic man who'd been highly placed in a Vancouver organized crime syndicate, the Mafia. I nodded again, wondering where this was going. Stan said this man was trying to dry out and was experiencing shame and regret for the life he'd led and the people he'd hurt. He'd talked about his crimes, looking for absolution or comfort. He never finished his counseling. He was assassinated by the mob. Stan was watching for my reaction. I said nothing. He continued, 
The man's associates had seen a change in his behavior and became suspicious. They'd had him followed and realized he was talking to a counselor, breaking omerta, the code of silence. They decided he was divulging information about their illegal activities to Stan. The punishment was immediate and merciless. But it wasn't just the man who had come to Stan for counseling that was in danger. Reverend Sears and Pauline's mother also were in danger. Ruth said, One day, Stan and I went together to a meeting at another church. We were in Stan's car on our way back to the office, she recalled. They were driving along a quiet street near a stretch of woods. A car came out of nowhere and was trying to run us off the road. Stan tried to outrun the other car. In its front seat were two grim-faced men, determined to keep up, she said. Neither she nor Stan recognized either of them. In an attempt to lose them, Stan had darted down the back alley of a residential neighborhood. It ended abruptly in a garage. He turned around just as the car was coming around the corner towards them. The man in the passenger seat had a gun pointed at us. A gun? I saw images of chase scenes from television cop shows. This stuff didn't happen in real life. At least, not in our lives. Stan was slowly nodding, his eyes on the table as Mom spoke, lost in the memory of that frantic afternoon. Stan had driven over a curb and a lawn to avoid the other car, and they'd managed to get to a busier road to somehow lose the other car and return to the church office thoroughly shaken. Did you call the cops? Mom and Stan shook their heads. This was beyond the local police. What do you mean? I was incredulous. Stan said he'd learned from his sessions with the mobster that at least a few city police officers were in the pocket of organized crime. He thought calling the police might be the worst thing they could do. It was, Stan said, an attempted hit, or at least an attempt to scare or warn them. An organized crime syndicate in Vancouver had put contracts out on both of them, he said. It was no longer just Stan in danger. The mafia was after my mother, too. We've all been on the run ever since. And there was a reason that the mafia was targeting Ruth's family. It was because Pauline's father, Warren, was deeply involved in organized crime. Mom was looking at me with concern. She said that my father's mob connection was initially shocking to her, but eventually came to make sense. It explained some of his business associates, who seemed dodgy, the sudden appearance of luxury goods she thought to be beyond even Warren's means, a new car for her birthday for which he'd paid cash, a new cottage just across the Washington state border, and the strange request he'd made when she was pregnant with my brother. He wanted me to fly to Mexico with a private nurse and have Ted born there, she said. He told her he wanted to be able to put Mexican businesses in Ted's name, which the baby's joint citizenship would allow him to do. He said this would create great opportunities for Ted later. But really, what kind of Mexican businesses was he talking about, she asked. Her mouth pursed, still outraged all these years later, that he would have used his unborn child to support some money-making scheme. They told me that when Mom went to work for Stan, the mob saw it as a threat, this alliance of a man they perceived as an enemy, with the estranged and presumably vengeful wife of an organized crime figure. They never even considered it was a coincidence, Stan said. They thought it meant your mom was feeding me information, things she'd witnessed or picked up during her marriage, names of associates or details about what they were up to, and they figured I was reporting it back to the authorities. So death contracts had been placed on Stan and Ruth, which is why the two men in the car went after them and pointed a gun at them. They were able to escape that initial attack, but there would be others. Stan and Mom described the Mafia as not actually a single entity, but a many-tentacled octopus, a collection of interconnected yet sometimes opposing syndicates, 
or organized crime groups, local, national, and international. Sometimes there were shared interests among the groups, other times they were in competition or even at war. The orders to get, stam, or mom didn't always come from the same group. Sometimes the threat wasn't an attempted hit. There had been attempted kidnapping of me or Ted or other family members, intended as a way of getting to mom or Stan, or of controlling them. Sometimes they were just coming after something mom had in her possession. Once a list of businesses had been found hidden in the stuffing of a chair that had been custom-made for the Patterdale Drive house in North Vancouver before the divorce. Money laundering businesses with names and account numbers, Stan said. But Pauline had questions. How could you know what the mob was planning or reacting to, I challenged. How would you know what they were plotting or thinking? Who was tipping you off about the threats and the people coming for you? For us. Mom looked pained. She lifted her shoulders and then dropped them, trying to release some of the tension. Here's where this is going to start to bend your mind. And we'll all get our minds bent together after we take a moment to thank our patrons. So we want to take this moment to thank our patrons for making this show possible, including Michael H., Matthew M., Sam W., Thomas H., and Marco P. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. Okay, Jimmy, what mind-bending thing did Ruth tell Pauline? That she and Stan were receiving help from an anti-organized crime task force. The first time the mob came after him, Stan said, a man with a knife had jumped him as he was coming out of the church late one night. He was trying to fight the guy off, already had some defensive cuts on his hands, when he became aware of another person entering the fray. It was a big guy who apparently was coming to Stan's rescue. He quickly overpowered the knife-wielding man who turned out to be young in his early 20s, frightened and strung out. A third man appeared from around the corner of the church, handcuffed the attacker, and led him away. Stan was puzzled. He thanked his rescuer, saying that he didn't even have his wallet on him, that he could have died in a futile robbery attempt. It wasn't a robbery attempt, the man responded. He told Stan the attacker had been hired to come after him. Stan and the stranger went back into the church office. That's when Stan first learned he was now a target of the Vancouver mob. His rescue that night was his first introduction to members of a shadowy government agency under military orders and tasked with fighting organized crime. Even Parliament was unaware of the agency, the man told him. The chain of command led directly to the Privy Council. For Americans, the Privy Council is the highest body of advisors to the Queen and the Governor-General of Canada. Under normal circumstances, the Queen and the Governor-General are required to accept the recommendations of the Cabinet, which is part of the Privy Council. So it's an elite body at the highest level of Canadian government. And it had created this special task force to deal with organized crime. It was a small, tight organization in which leaks were not tolerated. The agency comprised a cadre of undercover security people who gathered intelligence, provided protection for people under threat, including my family, 
and who, when necessary, would fight or even kill as part of a government-sanctioned but secret war on what was seen as the growing domestic threat posed by organized crime. My mind conjured up drug dealers and illegal gambling or prostitution rings being busted, Hell's Angels clubhouses being raided. But as Stan described it, that was just the low-level stuff. This agency's war on crime extended to the boardrooms of some of the country's biggest corporations, he said, sometimes to the offices of politicians, and even, on one occasion, a cabinet minister. So as the task force began investigating the mob plots connected with Pauline's father, they'd been letting Stan and Ruth know whenever they or the children were in danger. They'd also provided protective services, but there was still an ongoing threat. I can imagine this helped Pauline understand a lot of what happened in her childhood. Indeed, it explained why Ruth had insisted on the children being so secretive and not telling people things like where they would be and when, lest the children let this information slip and it get back to the mob. It explained why Ruth didn't want the children to have anything to do with their father, Warren. It explained why their mother would suddenly change their dinner plans to unexpectedly go out to a restaurant, why she'd pull them out of school for an unexpected picnic or hike in the woods, and why they couldn't tell anyone where they were going on vacations. These were because they'd gotten a tip from the security people that a threat was imminent and they needed to change their plans. It explained why Pauline came home and found her mother throwing away all the food in the fridge. That was because they'd learned that something had been poisoned, but they didn't know what, so she had to throw it all out. It explained why the mother had the children wash their feet before unexpectedly taking them out to dinner and a movie. They learned that something toxic, apparently a paralytic, had been sprinkled on their carpet. So Stan uh, brought something the security people had given him to counteract its effects, and Ruth sprinkled that in the water that they'd used to clean their feet. Then she needed to get them out of the house for a couple of hours so the carpet could be cleaned. It explained why the mysterious friend you don't know had given Pauline the buckskin moccasins for Christmas and where the Christmas oranges came from. These were gifts from people on the security team that was watching over the family. It explained why both the Searses and Ruth had moved their families away from Vancouver, first to Winnipeg, Manitoba, and then to St. John, New Brunswick. It explained why, in the middle of a school week, Ruth had taken them to sleep over at the Sears' house and why Pauline heard a horrible scuffle happening during the night, which her mom tried to blame on the dog going wild. We had to be together that night so our coverage could double up, Stan said. He described how intelligence had been intercepted that indicated something serious was headed our way, a serious attack by pros from the old country. There'd been enough warning to get us together so our security people could mount a united response to the threat. What you heard that night was a lethal fight, Stan said. They'd come in through the basement windows, two of them armed to the teeth. Our agents were there to meet them. It was a terrible fight and we lost one man, he said, but they lost two. The new revelations explained why Ruth once took them to visit Stan in the hospital and he looked really injured and was struggling to breathe with pain in his chest, even though they said he'd been thrown by a horse. It was gunshots that startled the horse that day, he told me. A hitman, hiding in bushes, had fired several rounds aiming for Stan. One of the bullets had hit him in the chest, knocking him from the horse. He'd nearly died. 
It explained why once on vacation, Pauline had come upon Stan sitting by a fire and he didn't recognize her. Stan had been darted, poisoned the night we arrived at Algonquin by some thug who turned out to have been following us since we'd left Winnipeg. When Stan went to the bathroom to wash up, his assailant had been in the bushes nearby, and the last thing Stan remembered for several days was a stinging pain in his neck. It scrambled my brain, Stan told me. I didn't know who anyone was, where I was. One of the undercover security people protecting us got him back to the campsite and left him by the fire where his wife Sybil found him shortly after. I remembered him hunched in a lawn chair, feeding logs into the fire looking afraid and depleted, his eyes following everyone who came near us with suspicion. Mom said that soon after Stan had started acting strangely, she found a note under a rock at the step of our tent trailer. It wasn't signed, but it said that while our guys hadn't been close enough to prevent the darting, they'd caught the attacker and they were having the poison analyzed. She and Sybil were to keep Stan quiet, not to take him to hospital. The next morning, there was another note, she said, with a small bottle, an antidote. They were to make sure he got a pill every four hours. He would be fine in a day or so. And of course, the revelations explained why they sometimes found their mother crying from all the stress and fear that the situation resulted in. Yet, despite it all, Ruth managed to protect herself and her children from the dangers all around them. She even managed to give them a somewhat normal life. Somehow my mother managed to maintain a veneer of normalcy that included Sunday dinners, piano lessons, getting up early to help with math homework before school, and playing catch with my brother in the yard after dinner most evenings. And that was a real tribute to Ruth. But now that Pauline was old enough to learn what motivated all the strangeness in her childhood, now that she had learned about the secret world that Reverend Sears, his wife, and her mother were part of, what would she do? As we'll hear next episode, learning about the secret task force that had been protecting them was only the beginning. There was a whole secret, highly classified world whose inhabitants referred to it as the Weird World, and Pauline herself would be offered an invitation to go inside and become a resident of the Weird World. This is an incredible story, Jimmy. What is your preliminary bottom line before we get to next week? Pauline Dakin had a very strange childhood. Her mother did a lot of very strange things whose significance could only be understood in hindsight. What Ruth and Reverend Sears told her when she was 23 made sense of and explained all the bizarre things, but there were even more bizarre things yet to come. <laughs> Amazing. So, Jimmy, what do we have for further resources for folks if they want to find out more? We'll have a link to Pauline's book, Run, Hide, Repeat, although, spoiler warning, if you don't want to know what the even more amazing things are, wait till after next week's episode before you get the book. Also, we'll have an interview with Pauline uh, that you can watch on YouTube. Again, spoiler warning for the interview. We'll also have a link to the Queen's Privy Council for Canada, or an article about it, rather, so that if you're not familiar with it, you can read up on it. Awesome. So, Jimmy, we have mysterious feedback this week on spontaneous human combustion, but I gather you have something you wanted to say first. Yeah, I have a request for volunteers for the Mysterious Irregulars. One of the things I've been noting as I do research on episodes, I, I often go to Wikipedia as a starting point, you know, just to look for further resources on a given topic, you know, what books and articles can I read about it? And I've noticed lately that Skeptoid Podcast is showing up a lot 
in the articles on Wikipedia on mysterious topics. Now, Skeptoid, as its name would suggest, is a skeptical podcast. And so there are, you know, they're looking at these things from a skeptical debunking angle most of the time. But it occurred to me, well, wait, if a podcast can be a resource on Wikipedia, maybe Mysterious World could be a resource on Wikipedia. Now, I've had previous experience with Wikipedia, and one of the things they don't want you to do is link your own stuff. So I can't put Mysterious World on there myself. But if any of our listeners are Wikipedians and would like to help promote Mysterious World and the not skeptical, but the faith and reason perspective that it tries to bring to mysterious topics, email us at mysterious at SQPN. And we'd love to have some volunteers helping to work us into Wikipedia pages as a way of providing the broader world with the kind of perspective we share here on Mysterious World. And it also would serve as a form of evangelization. Very good. Great idea. All right, so for the feedback, our first feedback comes from Dan, who sent this email. I just finished listening to the spontaneous human combustion episode, and I have to say that it was a real missed opportunity to bring the heat with a sample from one of my favorite songs. I see what you did there. The acapella group The Bobs released the song Spontaneous Human Combustion on their 1993 album Shut Up and Sing. I first heard the song in middle school in the mid-90s, and it burned itself into my memory. I see that one, too. I think it would have been the perfect match to really set off the episode. There's a third. That's right. I provided a YouTube link to the song that set my heart aflame. Four. (laughs) The omission has me a little hot under the collar. Five. Five. But I don't think anything can extinguish. Six. Six. My love for Mysterious (laughs) World. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Great job, Dan. (laughs) Thank you, Dan. Uh, We got a lot of heat-based humor in the responses, but you had more than anybody else in a single (laughs) response. So I wanted to include yours as a sample of the burning wit that people used (laughs) in their comments on spontaneous human combustion. Also, we'll have a link in the further resources to the song Spontaneous Human Combustion by the Bobs. And as Dan said, they're an acapella group. I've I've heard some of their work for a long time. I used to hear them on Dr. Domeno and stuff. Yeah, awesome. Dr. Domeno. All right. Michael wrote on Facebook, I've seen shows on this subject before and they were always sensationalized. Thank you for your balanced, unemotional review of this curious phenomenon. Thank you, Michael. And that's par for the course here on Mysterious World. We are intrigued by mysteries, but we don't try to sensationalize them. We try to look at them soberly and see what we can figure out. Doreen wrote on Facebook, I had a friend many, many years ago who liked to carry strike anywhere matches in his pocket. One day we were playing something and he got hit with a basketball right on the front pocket. Never saw someone take their pants off so fast. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. And younger people may not be aware of the Strike Anywhere matches. A lot of the matchbooks you see are not Strike Anywhere. They have a special little strip that you have to... The chemistry of the match heads is formulated, so they're designed to catch fire when you strike them on that strip, but not on anything. However, older matches were not formulated in that narrowly specific way, and you could just strike a match on anything or use your thumbnail or whatever. You sometimes see that in movie where in movies where to look really cool, a 1940s gumshoe detective like Humphrey Bogart or something will have a match in his hand and just 
light it with his thumb. <laughs> but yeah, there is there is that difference, and there's a reason that they later switch to the safety matches. <laughs> Although, as someone who likes to camp, I sometimes I really wish we had strike anywhere matches still. <laughs> so uh, Ted writes on Facebook very simply. Time Lord Regeneration gone bad. It could indeed be. And Time Lord Regeneration seemed to be getting more and more violent in recent mm. years. It's like every time the Doctor regenerates, he wrecks his own TARDIS. Dude, just go outside for this. <laughs> That's right, right. Save the TARDIS. Herot on YouTube writes, I lost 85 pounds in about a year on your weight loss advice. If I had known about your human fat theory on spontaneous human combustion beforehand, I would have been way more motivated to lose that fat faster. I guess we now know your real secret motivation for your own weight loss success. Oh, believe me, I was motivated highly for reasons having nothing to do with spontaneous human combustion to lose weight. I had suffered from being obese for decades and I was desperate. It was the only thing standing in my way of losing it was knowing a technique that would finally work. Agent JSO9 on YouTube writes, in the Skinwalker Ranch episode, there was mentioned a dog who was completely incinerated by mysterious flying orbs. The circumstances of that combustion seems very similar to this one. Wouldn't you agree? Well, it, there is a point of similarity in that the dogs were incinerated, but I think it kind of ends there. The dogs didn't spontaneously incinerate. They were being chased by one of the blue panic orbs, according to the account. And so it wasn't spontaneous canine combustion. It was blue panic orb induced canine combustion. At least that's what we're given to understand. I was re recently watching the Secrets of Skinwalker Ranch series on YouTube, I'm sorry, on History Channel, and they had a, a eyewitness to that event uh -huh. who was speaking about it. And he said it was more like that the dogs were, uh, sad to say, smushed by a big circular object, and then it was burnt around the edges. So the, the dogs oh. weren't technically, according to this particular account, weren't incinerated, but more were smushed flat. Poor dogs. But, uh, okay. Well, we'll, well, for all the people who have asked, yes, we will be doing more on Skinwalker Ranch in the future. <laughs> so we'll uh, see what we can find out about that. <laughs> it's one of my favorite episodes. So uh, Brooke writes on YouTube, this honestly terrified me as a child. Yeah, it did a lot of kids. And I think that the reason in part had, even though it's a scary concept in and of itself, until you grow up and you realize this is extremely rare, I really don't have to worry about this. I think that the reason it scared a lot of kids is touched on in our last piece of feedback. Ed in New Mexico wrote on YouTube, I remember back around the early 1980s that this was covered in the TV show That's Incredible with Fran Tarkenton, John Davidson, and Kathy Lee Crosby. I watched that. This show mm -hmm. made it sound like spontaneous human combustion seemed incredible, but was likely true. Jimmy and Dom, your handling of the topic was much more reasonable and balanced. Thank you, Ed. I rem also remember That's Incredible, as well as Real People and other similar shows. And mm -hmm. yeah, the, That's Incredible did sensationalize things. And I think that was one of the things that not just That's Incredible, but a lot of shows will try to sensationalize this topic. And that generates unnecessary fear on the part of children. I think it's better to put this in perspective and let them know, OK, there is this weird thing, but we don't really have to worry about it. Right. Kids are really bad at assessing likelihood of risk. So yeah. it, that's parents job is to help them with that. All right. Great feedback. Thank you, everyone. We love your feedback. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? 
Well, we have a Dark Matter update. We talked about Dark Matter originally in episode 83 on the case of the missing universe. For people who may not remember, Dark Matter is supposed to be a form of matter that interacts with other matter by gravity, but not otherwise, which is why we can't see it or touch it because you need electromagnetic interaction for seeing and touching. But it's thought to explain some of the ways that gravi- that galaxies rotate and things like that. So a couple of interesting articles. There's always a lot coming out on the dark matter debate, but a couple of interesting articles that recently came out. One of them deals with Sagittarius A-star. Sagittarius A-star is a very heavy, supermassive body at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Our galactic core is in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius. And so Sagittarius A-star is thought to be a supermassive black hole that is kind of the central mass organizing our galaxy. And we've seen similar bodies in other galaxies. We've even been able to map the motion of various bodies around Sagittarius A-star. We can actually see all the way to the galactic core and see stars swinging around this invisible dark body. And it's been assumed that this is a black hole, you know, which is a collapsed remnant of a really heavy star. But there are some eccentricities in what we've been observing about it. And so there's a new theory that maybe it's not a black hole at all. Maybe it's a supermassive clump of dark matter. And Mm. so it wouldn't be the remnant of a star. It would be something else that's stranger. So you can read about that. Also, if you've ever thought that our world seems a little bent, well, it's not just our world. Our entire galaxy is warped. And this is something we've had indications of for a while. But you know how if you ever watch videos of like guys in New York spinning pizzas, you know, they got the pizza dough and they're spinning it and they throw it up in the air. And as they throw it up in the air, even though the center of the pizza is fairly level, the ends of the pizza, the rim of the pizza will warp up and down as it spins. Well, the Milky Way is doing that uh, very slowly. But it's doing that. And because dark matter is thought to explain the rotation of galaxies and the unusual rotation rate we see at the edges of galaxies, there's also potential implications for dark matter from studying the way in which the Milky Way is warped like a pizza. So it's not actually flat. It tips up on one side and bends down on the other. And that warp travels around the rim of the Milky Way like a ripple of pizza travels around the rim of a pizza as it spins. Mm, interesting. So instead of being like a candy bar, our galaxy is real more like a pizza. I, I like that better, actually. Instead of Milky uh-huh. Way, <laughs> the galaxy is a giant pizza. Uh, yeah. as the, the Italian in me loves that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Those are great headlines. So uh, that should do it from us. So we want to hear back from you, your feedback. What are your theories about Pauline Dakin and her secret childhood? You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? We're going to learn about the even more startling things that Pauline found out about next, including the weird world. And we'll find out what happened when Pauline was invited to join the weird world and the price she would have to pay to do that. 
And as we finish out, we want to give a big thanks to my wife, Melanie, for being a principal reader in this episode. Uh, thank you very much. All right, so you can join the StarQuest fan club. You don't want to miss this. Join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. That's StarQuest to 66866. It's a new thing we're starting, and uh, we want to invite you to be part of the StarQuest fan club. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>